so I want to begin <clears throat> my part of uh, this morning with a question. How many of you uh, took at least two years of foreign language when you were in school? Two years of a foreign language? Raise your hand. Really? Almost everybody. Almost everybody. Chris, what did you take? Francais. Francais, really? Awesome. Come here, come here. <clears throat> no, no, come here. <clears throat> come here, I need your help just for a second. Come on, you can do this. <clears throat> That's what you get. I know, you're like, I can't believe I raised my hand. That's, you sit in the middle. That's what happens. So I'm going to give you a mic. Here's what I need you to do. I'm just going to have you translate the sermon into French, okay? So as I speak, as I speak, I just want you to translate, okay? Um, the Lord is with us, and may the Lord richly bless you. <laughs> you don't know? I thought you said you took two years. Did you, how many years did you take? Two. Two? Two. Why don't you know? I thought you learned it. I can count. <laughs> But you don't, you don't just speak it every day? Oh, okay. Well, then you're not much of a translator. Go sit down. Let's hear it for Chris, everybody. She's so going to kill me. It's like, I can't believe you've made me do that. So, so here's the point. The point is this. Um, most of us took some foreign language in school, and most of us don't have any idea how to speak it, right? Right? Why is that? It's because we don't use it, right? You, you pass the test in school, at least probably got a C or something on most of those tests. But if you don't use it, you don't know it, right? It's that simple. And if years go by and you don't speak the language that you learned, it gets lost, and you can't find it. And, and most of us can count in the language we took in high school. I mean, maybe we know the days of the week or how to say where's the bathroom or really important stuff like that. But that's about it because if you don't use it, you lose it. Now, we've been in the book of Ephesians now for weeks. And we've, we've gotten through three full chapters of this book. It's a six-chapter book. And so we're halfway done and the first three chapters are absolutely filled with unbelievably rich doctrine. There is so much truth in just the first three chapters of Ephesians that it blows the mind. Just, just think what we've already talked about, how we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places where there is nothing that we need as followers of God that we don't have from him already in the person of the Holy Spirit. That we, if we are followers of Jesus, have been chosen before we were even born or even conceived chosen by God to be his children, predestined, Paul tells us in chapter 1, adopted, that we have become a part of the body of Christ, the family of God, because he adopted us even though we were orphans, even though we had nothing to offer, even though we didn't bring anything to the table. He just looked at us in our, in our pathetic a spiritual state, and said, I choose you, and I'm going to make you my child. He said, you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. There is nothing that can, that can happen to take you away from God because you've been sealed in the Holy Spirit. It says we've been made alive in Christ. It says we've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
It says that we've been grafted into the family of God, that we who used to be far off have now become a part of the people of God, that we've been made heirs of all of the riches of God, that we've been filled up to the fullness of God, and all of that is just some of the tips of the iceberg of what we learned in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. Holy moly. That is a ton of amazing stuff. It is awesome just to think about how wonderful God is, how great His grace is toward us, what a difference He makes in our lives to, be, to go from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive simply because of His grace. But here's the thing, if all we do is think about it, it has very little practical significance in our lives. You may have learned it really well but it will have no impact on your daily life unless you apply it and live differently because it's true. You're going to lose it if you don't use it. That's the reality. That, that this, this truth that we now have the chance to understand, we don't understand it just so we can know more about God. We understand it so that we can know God so that we can actually walk with God, so that we can actually put it into practice. And so the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul is telling us all of this truth, and the last three chapters of Ephesians, he's essentially telling us how to live it out. So we're turning the page now. So if, you're in, if you have your Bibles, open to the book of Ephesians, and we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. And I want us to look together at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul writes, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have been called. To walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Before we go any further in this text, I feel like we have to stop and talk about this. God expects us to walk in the manner that is worthy of the calling that you've received. If you are a Christian today, make no mistake about it. Hopefully you've been here for the first three chapters of Ephesians and you already know this. If you're a Christian today, you are a child of the king. Not a child of a king. A child of the king. The king of kings and lord of lords. The one who was and is and is to come. The alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. You're a child of the king king. Make no mistake about it. And here in verse 1, Paul is telling us that since that's true, we better live like it's true. And so, um, you know, if you want to arrange some Sunday vacation time or something like that, and you don't want to get hit in the face with uh, con convicting messages for the next several weeks, take the summer off. Because in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, Paul is going to pull us up close, and he's going to say, now I have something to say to you. Some things need to change in your life. All of this stuff is true. And why would we just set it aside and live as though it's not? What, what a terrible tragedy for someone who is completely impoverished, someone who is sick, someone who is uh, orphaned, someone who is completely lost and living in the streets and barely alive. And, and suddenly the, the king's entourage comes through town and sees this poor child just barely shivering in the street 
and, and the king feels compassion on this child and lifts up this child and asks about this child's parents and finds out this child has no parents. The parents died and there's no one to take care of this child. And this child is just basically there until it dies. And the king says, you know what? I'm going to make this child my own. And I'm going to take this child home. And she is going to become my daughter and she will be raised in the palace, and she will wear a tiara, and she will be dressed in finest purple, and she will ride on my chariot whenever I go through town. And as this girl grows up and is, is made aware of her background and her circumstances, she goes, you know what? I'm just so tired of all of this blessing. I think I'm going to go back and live in the streets. And she goes back and sleeps in that same gutter in which she was found. What a tragedy. What a, what a devastating thing that would be. And yet there's so many of us who name the name of Jesus who are basically doing that. Who are basically going, yes, amen, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe. And yet you watch the way we live and we live as though we don't actually believe. And so God is saying, I have a calling for your life that is massive. It is a high calling. It is a royal calling. Now, your thing is you're going to have to walk in that calling. And I'm always fascinated by what the Bible has to say about this idea of walking. Um, over and over again in Scripture, we see this concept of walking with God. It's, in my mind, probably the most commonly used metaphor in all of Scripture for the, for the life of, of faith. You go back to Genesis, all the way back to the Garden of Eden, and what do you find is going on between Adam and God? That they walk together in the garden in the cool of the day. I can't even picture that. I don't even know what that looks like, but I know that it has something to do with their relationship, that they walk together in the cool of the day in the garden. And then you go on to, say, Abraham, and the scripture talks about how Abraham called, or God called Abram out of the place where he was and said, I want you to come with me. And he said, where are we going? And he said, I will show you. You just come with me, and as we go, I will show you where we're going. So the point is not where we're going. The point is, come with me, and I will show you. You're going to walk with me. And the rest of the book of Genesis is practically all about Abraham walking with God. And we get that picture, and what is Abraham called in the New Testament? The father of faith. This picture of faith as walking with God. We see it with Moses and the children of Israel at the time of the Exodus. And God goes before them in a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. And what do they do? They walk. It's just a journey. As they walk with God, as he leads them, he provides for them, he teaches them, he guides them, he does all those things as they walk with him. And then you can't read almost any of Paul's letters without him saying, uh, you're supposed to walk with God, walk with God, walk with God, walk with God. We see it again and again and again. And as I've said so many times, the Christian life is not nearly so much about where you are or even who you are. The Christian life is about where you're going and who you're becoming. See, it's a process as we walk with God. And in that process of walking with God, we become someone. In that process of walking with God, we go somewhere. But God doesn't come to us and say, listen, here's what I want you to do. Fix yourself and get there. That's not what he does. He calls us and says, Come with me. And then as we walk with him, he fixes us. He transforms us. 
He makes us more like him. We begin to pick up his ideas and his thought patterns and his heart for people. And we begin to change from the inside out as we walk with him. And he doesn't have some destination where he says, listen, the point is just be the first one to get to the destination, wherever that is. No, he just says, come with me. Come with me. I'll take you there. It's about where you're going and who you're becoming. So when Paul tells us to walk in a manner worthy of this high calling on our lives, he is talking about our day-to-day, moment-by-moment activities, our choices, our attitudes, our behaviors. He's already told us that we've been saved by grace through faith. But we've been saved, he says, unto good works, which God prepared beforehand so that you should walk in them. That's Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And now he's going to tell us how to walk according to that high calling. So I hopefully you know I was uh, tongue-in-cheek when I said miss these next few weeks if you don't want to hear this. If you don't want to hear this, you definitely need to be here these next few weeks because God's going to tell us how. One of the reasons we struggle when we see the high calling of God in our lives is we just go, I, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to, how to, I'm just not that holy, you know? I'm just not that great. I just, I have these patterns, I have these attitudes, and then they're just kind of who I am. And, and I go and I hear these people talk about how we should be more godly and all that kind of stuff, and I just go, ah, I wish I could, but I just really have no idea how. These next three chapters, he's going to give us absolute details about how in our personal relationships in our families, in our marriages, in our work life. He's going to talk about the language that we use and the things that we talk about and the way to deal with conflicts and all of this kind of stuff. He's going to give us um, very specific, very practical counsel on how we can walk according to this high calling so we don't end up back in the gutter again. And it all begins with our hearts. Look at verse 2, Ephesians 4, 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. It begins with humility. I've said this a thousand times. So there are all these things, you guys know, that I just say them over and over and over and over and over again. This is one of them. When it comes to a problem between people, it doesn't matter what the problem is, the answer is always found in humility. Always, 100% of the time. There is never a time where the best way to address a problem between you and somebody else does not involve you humbling yourself. It always involves your humility. Now, I know you're thinking, no, 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 I have this challenge with this person, and I'm telling you, they need some humility. And you've just made my point. It involves your humility. There is no way for you to walk this walk that God has in mind for you without being humble. And here's the thing with humility. It's one of those things you really can't fake. It's like pretending to be tall when you're four foot seven. Like you could get high heel shoes and maybe even jump when you talk to people and they're going to go, look at that little short guy jumping, right? You can't fake Humility. People can smell a fraud a mile away, and they know when you're pretending to be humble. And when you pretend to be humble, it never works 
because the challenges that you have to face that need humility, you're going to fail at. And everything is going to blow up. You have to actually be humble. And we don't have time to do a whole study on humility today, but I do want to remind you. The scripture couldn't be more clear. In two different places, it says this. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so let's just forget all of the all of the high and lofty ambitions, and let's just be incredibly practical here. You choose. Which do you prefer? You want God's opposition to everything you try to do in life, or do you want God to give grace? Really, the choice is yours, but it all begins with humility. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And he reminds us that there is no point, Paul says, in even trying to behave in those ways unless our hearts have been changed. That's what we talked about the last two weeks. God has to transform our hearts from the inside out so that we can actually choose humility, so that we can actually choose humility and self-sacrifice over over pride and and self-advancement and self-glory. You show me a person, though, who's humble, and I will show you a person who is gentle, who is patient, who is tolerant, who is all these things, that Paul says we have to be. So it all begins with a transforming heart, and that is a humble heart, and it shows itself in the way that we live. So the rules are never the point. The changed heart is the point. But then Paul tells us what we should look like practically. So I'm going to um, give you a rule. You're in the family of God, okay? Welcome to the family of God. And every family has some family rules, Right? There are certain things that you just told your kids when they were growing up, and you just said, hey, in our house, we don't do that. In our family, we do this, right? There are certain family rules that you keep. I'm going to just give you a family rule for being a part of the family of God. Here it is. Get along with your brothers and sisters. Same rule you had in the family you grew up in, which you may not have kept so well. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, you're going to have to learn to live in, in unity. There are few, th- just, just picture this. As a parent, if you're not a parent, just bear with us. But if you're a parent, just picture this. It's a family vacation. You're doing the car, the trip in the car. You got the two kids in the back seat. You got the music on. You're just like seven minutes into your 3,000-mile trip across country. And there is nothing that blesses a parent more than when they hear the kids begin to attack each other in the back seat, right? There's just nothing as wonderful as the sound of your children yelling at each other. Every parent loves it, right? No. This is why, you know, in minivans, they had the seat. When I was a kid, my dad's hand could reach me, right? But in a minivan, you have to do, do you want me to pull this thing over, right? But, But man, when I was a kid, you... My dad didn't tell us to shut up. <laughs> it's hard to talk when your lip is bleeding. That was our thing, right? So, so parents hate it when their kids can't get along. And our Heavenly Father is no different. He, he calls us to actually love one another. Look what it says, verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope 
of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So knock it off with the bickering. That's what he's saying. You look around, you could just try not to let your face give it away, but just look around the room a little bit, and you will notice some people that you just love being with, I hope. I hope there are some people in the room today, if, you've not, if this is not your first visit, I hope that if you've ever been a part of this church, there are some people that you look around and go, man, I just look forward to seeing that person. I just enjoy having fellowship with that person. I think about this person when we're not together. I pray for her, and, 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 you know, and I text them and say, hey, how's it going? There are, there are these people that you care about. But then if you also stick around a church long enough, there will be some people that when you see them walking in that way, you walk out that way. And you're just like, ah, I just don't think I can have another conversation with this knucklehead. Do you realize what you'd have to do if you just decided not to ever have any more conversations with any knuckleheads in this church? You'd be in big trouble. It'd be a silent place, right? Because we get on each other's nerves. If we're serious that we're going to do life together, if we're actually going to love each other, if we're actually going to get in each other's business and help each other and encourage each other and confront each other and do all that kind of stuff, if we're going to actually follow what the Word of God says about being the family of God, we're going to bother each other. Not everybody here is going to be your favorite person. And you know what? That's okay. But it's not okay if you don't fight for unity. In fact, verse 3 tells us that if we're going to have a shot at this at all, we have to be diligent. Look what it says. Being diligent to preserve the unity. In chapters 2 and 3, he talked about this unity that he provided. He made us one. Remember that? He provides the unity and he commands us to preserve it. It's our job to be united, and we have to be diligent about it. That means we have to work at it. We have to be intentional about it. We have to make it a priority. So the Spirit makes this unity and peace possible, but it's our responsibility to preserve it. Now, you say, wait a second. Is Paul saying that just because we're Christians, we have to all agree on everything? I mean, is he saying that we all have to think alike and we all have to have the same convictions on everything? Is, is he saying that we all have to vote for the same candidates and have the same political views? Is he saying that, that uh, God requires uniformity in his church? Absolutely not. Let's not make this mistake of confusing unity and uniformity. God calls us to unity, not uniformity. In fact, the following verses that we'll get into in the next few weeks, he talks about the diversity of the church and how important it is that we embrace that diversity. We're not supposed to all be the same. He spells it out even better in Romans 12, and he spells it out in 1 Corinthians 12. Turn the Bible to the book of Romans, just a few books to your left. Before 1 Corinthians, you find Romans. I want you to go to Romans 12, and we're just going to look at this real quick. In Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 4, he's speaking of the church here, and here's what he says. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, 
and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. He's not saying become the same. He's not saying you have to agree on everything. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul compares us to a physical body, and he compares each one of us to members or organs within that body. And he says, essentially, you know, a hand is not designed to do what an eye is designed to do. But which one do you want to be without? We need everything in the body to be a healthy body. And in the same sense, we need everyone in the body of Christ with all of our diversity and all of our differences to become one body. But we must be unified. The body makes the point, the, the picture of the body as an illustration makes the point that our diversity makes us great if we diligently strive for unity. So uniformity would mean that we all look the same, we all talk the same, we all vote the same, we all have the same guidelines for our individual lives. Unity means that we embrace our differences, but we never forget that what we have in common Jesus Christ and his mission for this world far outweighs all of the different things that separate us. It means that we all live individually and collectively for the great purpose of being pleasing to God. So it is okay if the person sitting next to you today wants to vote for a different candidate than you want to vote for. It really is okay. It is okay for him to do that. What is not okay is for you to judge him, despise him, and disrespect him because of it. That's not okay. It is okay if the person sitting next to you comes from a different background, has, has a different uh, skin tone, has a different accent than yours, but it is not okay to separate yourself be from her because of that. That's not okay. It's okay if the person sitting next to you is from a different generation or has a different gender or has a different theological view than you, but it is not okay for you to let things like that separate you from one another so that the unity of Christ is not preserved and shown to a world that desperately needs to see it. We have to be diligent to make sure we preserve and maintain this unity, even in the midst of our diversity, and that is hard work. But guess what? It is absolutely non-negotiable. Paul doesn't say, listen, if you think it would be okay, if you like this idea, I mean, this is just a suggestion, but, you know, preserve the bond of unity. That's not what he says. He talks about humility and service and sacrifice and, and patience and tolerance. 
Guys, we have to remember. Look at verse 4. Look at verse 4. Oops, go back to Ephesians. I was about to read from Romans. Go back to Ephesians chapter 4. And look at verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Guys, I know we say we know this, but I just want to remind you again, there is only one God. And just in case you're not sure, you're not Him. So let's keep that straight. There is one Holy Spirit. There is one Lord. There is one Father of all. And He is not sending conflicting messages. So when, when you ask people, what's up with churches? How come they can't get along? Why don't they agree on anything? Why am I always reading about church splits and all of this kind of stuff? It is never because the Holy Spirit is sending conflicting messages to different people within the same body. There is one God, and He is always sending the same message through His Holy Spirit, and He would never conflict us when He calls us to unity. So if there is a conflict between you and a brother or sister in Christ, is that God's fault or your fault? I know what you're thinking. It's my brother or sister's fault. (laughs) There's only one God, and He is sending the same message. So we need to work diligently to get this right. You know, um, just to illustrate this, this is how it works, and maybe not all of you know this. This is how it works at Grace Fellowship. We have a board of elders that, that leads the church. And the elders have all the responsibility, really, to make all the major decisions for the church. And, and they have uh, authority over the doctrinal views of the church and all of those kinds of things and handling the finances. All of that is done by this board of elders. And the interesting thing that sets that apart from almost anything you've probably ever been a part of is that every single decision that the elders make, and, I, and I've been here now 27 years, This has been true for all of that time. Every single decision that the elders make is made unanimously. There's not a single decision in the history of this church that has been made by a vote of three to two among five elders. That simply doesn't happen. Every single decision is made unanimously. Now, do you think that's easy? You think we always have the same opinions about everything and we always go, yes, let's go this direction. And when one of us speaks, the others just line up behind and we move. That's not how it works. There have been some long, difficult, challenging decisions that went on for weeks and weeks and weeks of prayer and fasting because we would not move until we had unanimous agreement. Why is that? Because we are convinced there is one Holy Spirit and He is not leading us in different directions. So we are not going to move until we all know that we've heard from the Spirit. So is that difficult? Yep, very difficult. But it illustrates the fact that God is interested in guiding and directing us, and He will not do it in a way that tears us apart and ruins the unity of the church. And so as we practice genuine humility and truly strive to make it all about God and His will instead of our opinions and our preferences and our ideas, that honors God, and God works through that. How much better is that than when a church has whatever, a a monthly business meeting where anybody can come to the podium and make their argument about their view and their agenda about this or that, and then everybody argues about it on the floor, and you decide who's on what side, and it begins to sound like a presidential State of the Union address when when the person up front says something, and this whole side stands up and claps, and this side goes... And then somebody else says something, and this whole side stands up, and you go, oh, gee, is there any disunity in this church? 
Is there, are we all moving the same direction here? Because it sure doesn't look like it. Let me ask you this. Is it your perception that there's great unity in Congress? When you watch the State of the Union message, do you go away from that and go, oh, you know, the one thing I bring away from this that just comforts my heart is how everyone in that room is so on the same page and they just want to lead us in one direction. No, you go, my goodness, if they don't figure this out, nothing's going to get done in Washington. I'm not going to get into that. (laughs) By the way, this is one of the reasons that um, at Grace Fellowship, when you become a member of this church, it's not like the biggest gigantic process in the world, but it's a covenant. You know what we do. We, We bring people up here and we take vows together, all of us, and we covenant together to say we are going to do this thing as one body. And we promise to do that. And one of the things that we covenant when we do that, as many of you will know, is that we ask the congregation to make a vow that says, I will always put their interests ahead of mine. Man, that's not easy. But you want to find unity? It's a great way to do it. Because what did Jesus tell his followers? What did he say would be the surest sign to a lost world that that we're his disciples. Our love for the world, one another. Our love for one another. That is astonishing to people when they see it really lived out amongst a diverse group of people in a local church. That's why it's always cool to me when we have multi-generations, multi-races, multi-backgrounds and cultures all in one church because when the world sees that, they don't see that anywhere else. It's almost unheard of that people who are different in so many ways could actually be unified. They never see that, and it's astonishing to them. Everywhere else, people have their own interests at heart. Everywhere else, people are fighting for position and power. Everywhere else, people insist on having things their own way. But in the family of God, in the church of Jesus Christ, among the people of the Holy Spirit, there is an identifying mark that makes people stand up and actually recognize that we are who we say we are, followers of Jesus Christ, and it is our unity and love for one another. And for us, it's all about him if we're his followers. May God help us. Among all the challenges, may God help us to be humble, to be gentle, to be patient, to be tolerant, so that the world will see us and know we are his disciples and that we love and follow the Prince of peace. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you that you have done what it takes in the person of Jesus Christ to make us one. It's astonishing to think that we who are many have actually become one body and that as one body, you can do amazing things through us. We thank you for all that you have done and all that we've seen in these first three chapters about how awesome your love for us is and and all the implications of that. But God, we ask you to please help us. Help us to actually put our own personal preferences aside and follow after you. Help us to put our own prejudices aside and follow after you. Help us to let go of grudges or... or, um, the way that we may have judged people or been judged by them. And and let us, Father, 
break down walls that the enemy tries to build up, and may we be one so that we might glorify you. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Next week, um, we're going to have a lot more details about what this looks like to live in unity and change the world because of it. So please, please, please don't miss that. Father, we now pray that your blessing would fall upon each and every one. We thank you, God, that you, you are the one who sustains us, you are the one that empowers us, and you are the one who gives us strength. So we look to you, Father, to carry us through this week. We look to you, Father, to, to brighten us in the midst of difficulty. We look to you to make us love one another, that the world might know that you are God. In Jesus' name, amen.